Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, one of the most beautiful close-ups I have got in my life is uh, in the end of this picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, uh, when, you know, it is, it, the picture, the wild strawberries, is, is about a, a, a journey through a life. It's one day of the old man's life and he sinks back on his life. And in the, in the, in the late evening he's in bed already and he sinks back suddenly on his, on his early youth, on his uh, first love and on his parents. And there I have a long close-up. That is one of the most beautiful close-ups I have got in my life. Let's take a look at that. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how the podcast works. This week, I chose a movie that I love. I think it's maybe top 20 all time. It's a movie I could watch every single day. It follows all the rules of movies that I love. Dan, I told you you had to watch it. I think you teased me a little bit at the beginning, but you put it on and you've been doing the Dan for at least a week or two about it while we waited to record this. So what are we watching? Today, we're going to talk about Wild Strawberries, 1957, Ingmar Bergman, which, by the way, faithful listeners, you may know that I had to wait for today's recording because Mike was watching it again. And I was texting him and saying, come on, let's go. We're recording. And Mike's answer was, I just can't turn it off. You don't, you don't turn this movie off when you, when you start watching it. I intended just to do a little background or pick my scene or something like that. And I ended up just watching the entire thing all over again. In part one, of course, we always do our overall takes. What did you think of this movie? I texted you a couple of weeks ago when I said, let's keep building the list. Like what movies, what are some go-to movies? And usually we get our recommendations from other people. And you were like, let's do Wild Strawberries. And I said, fine. So here we go. First, thanks. This is a great movie. This is an unbelievably great movie. You want to you want to scream from the rooftops that everybody should stop what they're doing and watch it. And I'm going to try to do it justice. This is a guy. This is a movie about a man who is revered for his, his depths of knowledge, but he's filled with his own insecurities and his own hangups. I mean, it is it is physician heal thyself. That is the, the dominating force of this movie. And he wants to heal himself because he knows that he's running out of time. Like he knows that he's old. And it's so funny to see like old people in movies and what they're like. Like he's not Yoda and he's not like the great advice giver. He's also not Polonius. I mean, Polonius, Johnson says Polonius is, a, is an old man who does not know that he's old and still thinks he's really hip and stuff. But um, Isak knows that he's old. He, he knows that things are getting slower. He knows he doesn't talk to people anymore. He calls himself an old pedant. And he knows that eventually time's going to run out. We, the, the, the time is out of joint, right? There's no hands on the watch anymore. And it, it's him trying to come to grips with that. He goes on a literal journey, but of course, it's a journey into his own life. It's a journey with us. And it reminded me so much of the famous thing from Citizen Kane that we love, which is Bernstein's speech about the girl he sees on the ferry boat. Everyone knows that line, right? He says, a white dress she had on. She was carrying a little white parasol. I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all, but a month hasn't gone by since I haven't thought of that girl. That's a nice, like, sweet, wistful moment about the power of memory. But, you know, what if what if you did see that girl and what if you fell in love with her and then your younger brother married her and then you ended up marrying someone else who 
cheated on you, who mocked you behind your back for being so weak. And then you raised a son who hates you. I mean, and that stuff, it's its all about like, it's the dramatization of baggage and about somebody coming to grips with their own baggage. And it's very easy not to. That first scene in the beginning, he's writing out his, his memoirs. The dog is there. He's in this beautiful room filled with books. He seems like he's got the perfect academic life, but he's about to find out how little he knows. Yeah, I think that's dramatized really nicely when uh, he gets in the car with Marianne together and she says, do you remember what you said a month ago and he says he says something casual he says what you would expect to be said in that room but the words that she recounts are full of such bitterness and vile and it and you can see on her face that it's true and he almost laughs to himself trying to recollect a self even from a month ago could could that be me yeah he says he said to her i have no respect for mental suffering he just made it as an offhanded comment, but that really stuck with her. Yes, because she's come to him to be healed, right? The, the implication is that she ran away to her father-in-law's house where she'll, she'll have a place to stay so she can think things over. And he's told her, you can't be my patient. Right. But <laughs> it, interestingly, those lines, we don't see those lines. They're not actually repeated in that room. That that room is the facade of what life is like it's it's the it's the front of the house of his life and when they're in the car you start to get the view from the side and you you have to you have to do it in your own head as the viewer to put that scene together that's in the movie but it's not really in the movie to, to use a phrase that people use far too often nowadays, that room in the beginning is his safe space and he gets pulled out of it. And and of course, the farther you go away from that, the more vulnerable you are. And that's what you watch this guy become more and more vulnerable as it comes on. But it, like the great thing about the movie, one of the million things is like, is that he never becomes an object of ridicule. He never becomes um, sentimental. He never becomes an object of great wisdom. Like we're going to talk at the end, I'm sure what he's learned. And he definitely learns things. He's definitely a different person at the end of the movie, but it's done in such a natural human way where he thinks he'll just go on the drive. Marianne's like, can I come with you? He's like, yeah, sure. It's not even like the more the merrier. It's like, yeah, fine. If you want to, the maid's going to fly. But um, he, he has no idea what he's in for. And isn't that how things creep up on us in our lives? Like you, you don't wake up one day and say, say, I will have a revelation about my life. No, but I, I think the implication is he takes the car to better understand the dreams that have been happening to him. So he's he's been having these experiences at night and they're calling out for some experience during the day. And I think the idea is as soon as he leaves the shelter of that room, it's not even that he journeys into something. It's there's a force in his life, in his own mind, that's barely held back. And when he leaves a space where he's no longer protected from it, it all leaps out at him. Everything that he encounters during the day, even the way the house changes, is not it's it's almost passive on his part. It's th things are changing around him or coming into him to force him to have these these memories. Right. He he actually is a passive viewer in some of the scenes in his own mind. Right. When when he sees uh, Sarah kiss his younger brother in his mind while he's off fishing. Right. That That's the same thing as when he sees his wife in the clearing with, with the other guy, he takes the same perspective. And so again, I think that there's a force in the movie that's these things are barely held back and there's a safe construction around the room that started to crack. And I think it, there's a, there's a time in his life, maybe even a couple of months earlier where there was an airtight seal and something's broken the airtight seal. Yeah. Time. 
time has broken the airtight seal and knowing that your time is not your time is finite right and also that when he's watching those scenes you know this movie makes you think about all the baggage you have in your life at least it makes me think of that and how we kind of just like put it out of sight like like i don't want to think about this i don't want to have a deep conversation i don't want to go there in my mind but the thing about him is like he does go there and he like you know you get the sense when he's having these memories that he does welcome it like he courts them because what you want in your life, what, what you're attempting to do with your conscious mind is put everything on the shelf and on the desk where it belongs. But the experience of memory is that it's the box of jumbled toys with things. You, you move one thing, you move another thing, and you're not sure what he's going to find. His, his mother pulls out the pocket watch, which is the pocket watch from his dream. He's dreamt of a pocket watch with no hands, which is time right. time out of joint. But it becomes an actual physical object right. and i think what haunts him is it's very difficult to tell how much of what's going on in his head is a construction of his own bitterness or regret and how much of it is real and he seems to not be willing to look with both eyes at the same time at how much of it is real but when you 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 can see him how startled he is when he sees that the pocket watch is real which means that the crossover between dream and reality might be greater than he suspected yeah, we think we all think we're doing a really good job of having our act together and have everything compartmentalized. But then, of course, you scratch any of us a little bit, and all of a sudden, you're you're just like him. When that when she showed him that pocket watch, and you realize it's the same thing that was on the clock in the dream, like underneath what 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 uh, Fitzgerald would call you know the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg, like watching him, like the eyes of God, and you realize, wait a minute, that struck me as so dreamlike because you know, dreams, at least for me, it's just junk you have in your head. And sometimes that junk is just someone you saw during that day and they pop up your dream. Like when, when the, when the, the rotten guy he picks up, who's mocking his wife ends up as the examiner in the, in the medical room, like, like there's just junk from your dream. But then you realize that that watch, like he's had that in his head for a long time. And then it comes up there as, as big as a, an actual clock on the street. And you realize like, it's such a nice way to show what this guy's carrying around. Welcome back. So in part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments or things that stood out to us this time. Mike, I don't know where you're going to go with this, but what's a moment that really struck you this time? I thought it was so beautiful when they're sitting having lunch and the the two guys are on the opposite side of the table and they're arguing because one wants to be a doctor and thinks that there's there's nothing but his own death and the other wants to be a minister. And they ask him, what what's your position? Settle the argument for us. You're a 78-year-old doctor. So you have the you have some perspective on mortality that that we don't have and his defense, right? It's like he's on the witness stand and his defense is to try to recall a poem that speaks to seeing some sort of faith, but in the natural world and he can't remember it, but Sarah can remember it. She and Marianne can remember lines from it because it, it's it's implied that it's something that they make you memorize in your childhood. And so. It's it's like the examination in his dream in that the defense is supposed to be something that something so simple that you're supposed to recall, right? You, you don't, the implication is that you don't learn as you get older, but if you're not careful, you won't remember the things that you were supposed to remember that will serve as your guidepost, right? He, he has no, he's, he's supposed to be a moral man. He has no explanation about God. He's supposed to be a scientist. He has no scientific perspective on whether or not God exists. And the implication about God existing is not merely about his existence. It's about what that means for us, 
what does that mean about my life? Is my life recorded in the eternal mind somewhere? Or is it something passing that's recorded in my mind and it deteriorates as my mind deteriorates? And all he's got is like the equivalent of the, you know, Jesus loves me uh, or or the thing that you're supposed to learn when you're six years old, but he can't remember it. Yeah. And it, it, it's as though you come into life and they give you everything you need. And then you think, okay, well, I'll let me go on to the important stuff now. And that's the thing that you need, but you you tossed it away somehow. And he remembers half of a line from from the poem, and that's as close as he can get to a defense or settling the argument, which of course settles nothing. And of course, to those two guys who are arguing, that is the classic like dorm room at 2 a.m. conversation they're having. Like those two guys, I get the sense that they're having this argument because they think it makes them intellectuals, that this is what intellectuals argue about. But to him, like the existence of God is a much more different matter than it is to those two. He's he's trying to find out if he has an appointment later. <laughs> right, exactly. But he can't read the watch. Okay, so what's your moment? So my moment is, you could pick a few moments that are like this. I want to talk about the dreams and I want to talk about the memories. So we, we can just pick the one where he sees his wife, Karen, with the, with the adulterous suitor. So we see him as an old man interacting with his past and watching his memories. And of, the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh my God, this is just like a very, very famous play. 1949, I believe it was, came out in America. There's no way Bergman didn't know about this. But it's just like Death of a Salesman. It, it works in the same exact way. It's like Death of a Salesman, right? Bergman uses the same device to show Isak's memories as Miller does to show Willie Loman's. And that's a, like a startling thing that where you see Willie Loman and Isak in their, in their current age, like it's not a flashback. And it works so well. And it reminded me of something that Arthur Miller once said about Death of a Salesman. He said in this play, because remember, like that was re 1949. That was like revolutionary, right? And Miller said in this play, there are no flashbacks. In this play, there are no flashbacks. Now, that's interesting because we call them flashbacks for the sake of talking about them. So I might say, oh, yeah, the flashback when he's seeing his wife or the flashback when he's watching his, his brother and Sarah. But what Miller meant is that for Willie Loman, those aren't flashbacks. Those are like part of his walking around, that those memories are real to him. And they're so real that sometimes he just starts muttering, talking to the past. And I don't know about you, but I, I've caught myself at times of emotion, driving my car, almost like saying a few little words or phrases out loud when you get caught in your brain. Does this ever happen to you? Yeah. Good. So now I don't feel alone, right? You don't go around and do it. You can't do it all day long or, or that's not interesting to watch on stage, right? But the idea is that Willie and Isak get, get sucked into this world and they're not flashbacks. They're part, they're part of the way he walks around. And I think that as he goes out of that room you talked about in the beginning, those things get more powerful. That's why another movie that we love this reminded me of is how much is the strawberry patch, right? When he first pulls off there, it's like it's like hanging rock. Think about picnic and hanging rock, right? You have this place that that brings out all of these, all of these emotions and all of these drives in those girls, but it also happens to him as well. And he says, per perhaps I never should have left. And so, right, and so this is very much about regret in the present. Yeah. In fact, the, the scene, if you remember, the examiner says to him, this woman has been dead for 30 years, but you don't have sympathy for her. When you think about her, this is what you experience. And I think that the phenomenon that you're talking about is because when you're having, a, when you're having an experience in the present, the verbal center of your brain does whatever it would do as if someone were right in front of you. Yeah. And so that's that's proof that it's not just going on in some remote part of your mind. It, it's happening in the experiential part of your mind 
maybe even more clearly than the road is happening in front of you. Yeah. If you're driving and, and that's, and that's why he's failed the examination. He's failed the examination because the, the appropriate response, the correct answer is pity. The correct answer is understanding, but you feel like she's doing it in front of you for the past 30 years. And what you have to realize is that that's formed you. It means nothing to her. She's, she's beyond recourse now, right? Because she's passed into the place where you're going to pass into, but this is why you're failing. And instead of understanding that we as a viewer, when we see it, because it's, it's the first time or the second time or the third time, or it happens in the middle of the movie, we experience it as him. We feel betrayed. Again, to go back to Willie Loman, he said the word regret. So as you may remember from Death of a Salesman, you know, the, the people say the movie's about the, or the play's about the American dream. It's, it's really about Arthur Miller said, it, he said it's about a father son. It's about the relationship between Willie and Biff. And, and you watch the play the first time and you say, why is there such tension between these two? And the people in the family think that Willie's, you know, he's becoming unhinged or he has dementia, but he doesn't. It's that he's been carrying around this memory. And once you learn how to watch the play and you learn how it operates, that's why it's not until the middle of act two, until the climax where you realize the real memory that's been affected everything else is when Biff caught his father in a hotel room, you know, giving stockings to some woman to get him that his father cheated on his mother in order to get ahead in the, in the firm and, and, and to sell his, to sell his stockings, or whatever it is he sells. And that, that memory affects everything else. And the same thing happens in wild strawberries. Like you get these little memories. Okay. This is where we went. I was a kid and you see the twins who say each other and you get the, the uncle with the ear trumpet and it's kind of whimsical. And then as it goes on, those memories get more and more, threatening and and more and more they, they become more explanations of why he is like the way he is until you get to the crisis one i think when he when he overhears his wife talking about him okay so welcome back so in part three of course we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways dan let me frame something maybe for the people who are listening because we started off by talking about what a wonderful movie this is but we've talked about all the horrific ghosts of memory and i and i just finished watching and i think i i think maybe even in my voice that i've been a little bit more muted in this episode because i'm thinking about the movie while i'm talking so let's pretend that there's someone listening to us right now and they've said okay mike and dan pick great movies but this one sounds like one that i definitely don't want to watch i would rather stay in my office with my you know with my great dane and my paper so what would you what would you say to somebody who's been listening to us and and thinks that is is that how the movie comes off to you when you finish it? No, this movie is affirming and it's it's um it it, it embraces his humanity. That's a corny phrase, but it really does in a way that I find really affirming. It is not about the long dark night of the soul. It's not, it's, 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 you're right. We've been talking about it because that's dramatic. Like that, that's what great drama is, right? There are parts of it that are really funny, but there are parts of it that it's, it walks such a fine line between emotion and sentimentality. This movie has a thousand and one opportunities to become sentimental and it doesn't, it becomes emotional. The end of it is really emotional because it, it reminds me of, you said before, you know, or you didn't say this before, I'm going to say it now. It's like a Christmas carol, right? In a Christmas carol, you get you get scenes that are very scary. You get scenes that are very, both in the book and in the films, that are very um, upsetting. You get scenes that are really sad. But at the end, it's ultimately affirming. And the cool thing about this movie is it's like a Christmas carol, but he's his own ghost. He's his own ghost. Because we all are. We're, we're all our own ghost. 
Dickens puts in the three ghosts and and, and the and um, um Marley to make it dramatic, but we all walk around looking at ourselves, looking at our past, trying to make sense of why did I turn out like I did? For good or for ill, like, why am I like the way I am? And that's what happens in A Christmas Carol. But of course, he's saved at the end. The, a Christmas Carol has a happy ending, and so does Wild Strawberries. And I think that the exaggerations that Dickens makes, that this movie turns down the volume, but only about 15%. So what, what, are, the, what are the changes if you actually left your office and allowed yourself to be exposed, right? You you left the space where the ghosts can't penetrate. And so they've they've been at you all day. You might say, uh, I'm sorry for the way I acted this morning, right? And and Agda thinks he's sick. She's she's trying to check him for a fever. Why? Because he's not introspective, right? It, it he's been shaped as a man who's too afraid to look in there. So he does not even recall the events of the morning, just like when Marianne says, Don't you remember what you said to me a month ago? He doesn't, because he doesn't allow that to become a permanent memory. He's got too many of those already. He can't, he's too busy being haunted by the ghosts of. Th- 30 years ago, he can't be haunted by the ghosts of 30 minutes ago. But that's changed in the events. That's changed in the events of the film, because what's happened at night as he's recalling the movie for us and sort of summoning us from the beginning through the path of the day is he says, as I laid down, I began to think about the things that had happened to me today. And I started to recall my sweet childhood memories as I do when I get upset. And that that's really the change. It's it's it seems so minuscule, but it's enough to wreak havoc on the on the staleness, which is a good thing, right? That that's yeah. what gets that's what gets Evol to open up to him a little bit. And even Evol doesn't understand what he's saying. Do you remember when Evol is sitting by his bed and yeah. he says, "Okay, Dad, good night," and he seems panicked because this mo- when you're 78, this moment may not come ever again. He may die before the morning, right? There's one chance to say something to his son and he he's not actually sure what to say. All he can say is, how is it with Marianne? And when he's trying to mention the debt, right? He wants to call it off. His and son he says, yeah, you'll, you'll get your money. You'll, you'll get, your, get money. your money. And he says, no, 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 it's not that. And his son repeats it. He says, no, 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 you'll, you'll get your money. It's, it's fine. Right. And that that essential what do you think is behind that essential miscommunication well, between the two of them well that's what i think that was that, that's what i think is so great i love that part when he talks about the money because because again an essential if this were a hallmark movie they would embrace and they would hug and he would say it wasn't really about the money i was i was just trying to teach you responsibility but they don't they, you know i think that moment where he says it's not about the money or he says uh, don't worry about the debt and then evil leaves that's not settled but we know why isak said that he said that because I don't care about the money anymore. And and I love, that's what I mean about it, it avoids falling into sentimental traps. You said, you just said that he, he moves like a little bit or he moves 15%. I mean, in Scrooge, he moves 180, but that's okay. That's a different kind of thing. And it's dramatic. And, it, and so he doesn't go from Scrooge a sub one to, to Scrooge sub two, but he, it's because he's more like a human being and he, he moves just a little bit. And there are all these moments at the end in the last 10 minutes that show you that he's won or that he succeeded. Right. So like Marianne, she says, just like him. And then when she kisses him at the end, like that's such a great moment. Right. Even in the beginning, when she smokes in the car, remember, she says, I don't like cigarette smoke just to put it out and roll her eyes. But then after he takes a nap, he catches her smoking and she blows the smoke at the window and is kind of like smiling about it. Like now she does it. She puts a cigarette out just to be kind. So like he, he forms a relationship with her, which is great. Like that's a huge thing to form a relationship with your daughter-in-law who's been only staying at you with your house because she had nowhere else to go. And you said before about Agda, the maid, 
Um, he's making those jokes. They have their own banter. And she says, uh, oh, I'll leave the door open. I'll leave the door ajar in case you need anything. And she has kind of that funny look on her face. And he's kind of like, huh. Like, you don't think that he's going to like run in there or something. But there are these moments where you can see him becoming more fully human. It's It started to thaw. It's the yeah, first, that's it's exactly the first what sense. Happens. It's the first sense of the change in the seasons. And I think that's why all the ha- right, all the happy memories from from childhood happen in happen in spring or summer. And what you're told, what you're told is that 78 is the is the winter of your life and that spring and summer have passed. And what's what's happened almost just barely perceptibly is the temperature has started to climb up again. Or there's a war- right there's a warm wind. That's why she opens the she opens the window and draws the and draws the curtains so that he can feel it, but not be chilled to death by it. And I right that's that's why she opens the window, but but draws the curtains, and that's what allows him to to hear the singing of the youth downstairs. Otherwise, it would have been it would have been blocked by the window. Right, that's what this is. It's not an emergence out the door. It's just a cracking of the window so that the so that the breeze can come in, and it and it settles one. You can't relive your life like that's what you you can't go back and relive your life. And and it settles it settles one thing because there there's a stream going through this movie, which is is Evald his son. Marianne sees his mother right, and she recoils because she's pregnant with Evald's baby, and she thinks, well, the the mom is the grandma's horrible, and you're pretty bad. And Evald can barely say, I love you. He he just manages at the age of 38, while she's not in the room, not looking at his father, to say, I can't live without her. That's the, that's the extent of his emotion. And the question is, is it because he's been shaped by the doctor to, to that extent? He says he but doesn't want a baby because he was a child in a, in a loveless marriage. Yes, exactly. And it, and the right, and we see the we see the wife cheating all the time. Right, that she, that she's been carrying on, she's been carrying on some affair with the other guy. So, right, so is it because, is it because, he's shaped his son that way by his own actions, by his unwillingness, right, to, to emerge. So, is it nature or nurture that's mm-hmm. caused Evil to come out this way? And part of I part of the beauty I think is that as Evil starts to thaw just a little bit, five percent, right, that the, the unbroken paternity starts to starts to elide together maybe maybe they actually are related maybe it's not that evald can say he's sorry because it's because it's not really his son maybe there is a connection but between the two of them it's family global warming so you know another thing you, you said about we're talking about the ending this movie reminds me so much and isak reminds me so much in contrast of a character we've seen many times but we have not done an episode about this yet and here we go he's the he's the exact photo negative of rick blaine in casablanca so in casablanca right um Louis says, underneath it all, you're a rank sentimentalist. So in Casablanca, he's he's a rank sentimental. He is sentimental, but he covers it up with this veneer of cynicism and not caring about other people. Here, you know, someone tells Isaac, you know, beneath your benevolent exterior, you're as hard as nails. And so they think, oh, people that don't know Isaac think he's this lovable old man. He's so dignified. He's we're gonna give him the honorary degree with all the pomp and circumstance, but underneath it, he's really, really cold. So it's like he's this really cold negative. And both of these movies are about these guys who kind of flip on on the way they are. And I guess like Scrooge, 
Rick's flip is more dramatic. It's more it's more noticeable because he goes from Humphrey Bogart playing chess alone, which of course Isaac does in the beginning of the movie too. That's uh, a great. Thing. He doesn't he doesn't play. He moves his hand toward the piece and then he recoils. Cause I don't want to, cause I don't want to make a change. I love that. I don't want to commit. I can't even commit to a fake chess game. I love that moment. Right. But you get the idea that both of these guys don't have, don't like playing games with other people. You're not going to invite Rick and Isak over to play Catan because, and that's the way they want it. Right. And they want it for different reasons. Rick, Rick does it out of heartbreak. Isak, you get this, you get the sense, does it because he, it's just, I guess it's the same. It's just easier for both of them. Right. They both think they can compartmentalize, but then what happens of all the gin joints in all the world, she walks into mine, right? Ingrid Bergman shows up at Rick's cafe, American, and all these memories come back. That's when we get the flashback, right? When they're in Paris and here, the same kind of thing happens. I get this honorary degree. I got to leave that room. And then all these things start to come back. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how, how you know we love that idea in movies that people can change but i think the reason we love wild strawberries so much is because he changes in a way that we we actually that that strikes us as true more people would refuse emeritus or honorarium if you had to watch highlights of yourself from the last 50 years in order to celebrate those 50 right everybody wants everybody wants them to slowly lower the top hat onto their head in front of the audience but but nobody wants to actually see themselves in action because they're they're afraid of what we would say. I mean, we don't even want to listen to voicemails that we've recorded. I don't listen to this podcast, right? Why? But if, you but, don't like right, this, you don't like the sound of your own voice, right? Because, we, because if, but it, right? If, but if somebody said, "Hey, congratulations, you've been doing it three years," you'd be like, "Ah, well, you know, it was nothing, right?" But, but you wouldn't want to listen. You wouldn't want to listen to your own highlights because they they would make you cringe inside. And there's there's something about dramatizing that, but turning that that fruit that's picked into something that's palatable is the that's the alchemy of this film well that's the title right let's that title is the wild strawberries right they have a certain sweetness in the beginning sarah's picking them as a gift for her uncle there's something very they, they only come out a certain time of year right and they're very very precious but of course the fact that they are the fact that they are rare is of course what makes them sweet just like youth just like and let's talk let's finish the podcast by talking about the last shot so you said before he feels good um you know when he lays down he thinks about the memories of his youth I love the last shot of this movie. You know why? Ask me why I love the last shot of this movie. Why do you love the last shot of this movie? Because he says that he saw his parents. He's a little kid, right? He goes around the bend and he sees them and his father's fishing. He's got that big fishing pole and his mother's there. Here's why I love it. Because they're far away. I love the fact that he's looking at them from a distance. He doesn't go up and, 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 and embrace them. They don't say anything to me. He just, and, and and when I saw that the first time, I'm like, that's like a dream. That's exactly like a dream. Like I remember my parents, they're gone now, but they're far away. I can kind of see their figures, but that's okay. They're far away. I'm not going to get that time back, but at least I can still see them in my mind's eye. And that's why I get like a perfect ending for this movie. And that's why it's a happy ending. The most beautiful thing is, that you see him smiling that's that's actually the last shot right that there's so much beautiful artistry through this movie that bergman says that after 90 minutes i've earned the right just to tell you how to feel about that there's there's no ambiguity about how you're supposed to feel or what you're supposed to take away he's he's smiling in bed he's not a child again but there's something that he's allowed to touch but as you said from his own perspective and bergman wants you to know how to feel about that Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about wild strawberries. You can follow us on X at 15MINFILM. You can also follow us where, Mike? Letterboxd. Letterboxd. And in your mind's eye, please let us know what to watch next. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.